Amen. Well, the scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter 3. We've been going through a series of sermons on 1 Peter. Today we're reading chapter 3, verses 8 to 22, which is the end of the chapter. It's a reading of God's word. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if it should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Amen. So reading of God's word, please join me in a word of prayer. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us through your word, through your servant. I pray that you would give us a timely word, a good word. I pray that you would help remove any distractions from us, any distractions in our rooms or desks, in our minds. Help us to be focused on your word. Would it be true and beautiful? Would it minister to us in this season? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Want to um, greet you all again in the Lord. Hope that you guys are staying safe, staying sane, staying healthy. And as I talk to more and more people at City Light, I realize that everyone's going through this pandemic in a different way. Everyone has a different struggle. Not everyone is handling it well, which is understandable. Some people have particular stresses. It might be a stress at your job, not having a job, not being sure of your job. It might be stress of family. A lot of our parents are watching their kids, helping set up their Zooms while they themselves are going to work. It's stressful. Some of you might have parents who are elderly, who are isolated. You're trying to care for them and figure it out. It's a stressful season, and everyone has their stresses. I was reading a study from the University of Boston, and it said that, during this pandemic, cases of depression have tripled. 
That was done at the very beginning of the pandemic. Most people think it's much worse. It's a dark time, not just for individuals, but for our country, for our city. There's a lot of unrest. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of division. And in times like this, we need the church. We need to come together as believers. And that's why we're actually looking at First Peter, because it's written to a church that's under stress. It's under siege. Times are really difficult. People are wondering about where everything is headed. And Peter writes to encourage them. And today we're looking at this idea that Peter says, when the world gets darker, Christians are called to shine all the more brighter. Peter tells us in this chapter that as the world gets darker and more difficult, we are not supposed to get dark and difficult like the world. But in contrast, the world needs a light more than ever. Uh, Christian people, we're going to talk about, more than ever need to be a light. Because if Christians aren't light, where's the light going to come from? If Christian people are not people of hope during this very dark times, where is the hope going to come from? So calling, especially now, is for believers to live as light. So we're going to talk about that this morning. How do Christians live as light now in this dark time? And then we're going to look at three things. The Christians live as light in the way that they love, in the way that they speak truth, and in the way that they point this world to Jesus. Those three things. In the way we, the light of love, the light of truth, and the light of Jesus. And we're going to start with the light of love. As I mentioned before, we're reading a letter. It's written by the apostle Peter. He wrote those, them, these to Asian Christians. And he wrote them to encourage them, most of them are new believers. They just became Christians. They, these are non-Jewish people. They just become Christians. But now all of a sudden they feel like strangers in a strange land because now they don't worship the same national gods as their neighbors. Their neighbors think of them as outcasts, as uh, strange, as weird, as other. And Peter is teaching them a whole new way to live a whole new way to relate to people. And in this section, he especially calls Christians to shine a light, shine a light. And he first encourages them to be light in the way that they love each other and outsiders. This is what he says in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil. Or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Statement that summarizes this section is, uh, I love this phrase, tender heart. Peter says Christians should be tender hearted. The heart is the central thing uh, in, in the human person in the Bible. The heart is the center of our affections, where our decisions are made, where our dreams come from. That's the heart. And what Peter is saying is that you should have a tender heart as a believer. One of the ways to to explain what a tender heart is, is to explain the opposite, which is a hard heart. A hard heart is unfeeling. It's not sympathetic. A hard heart doesn't sense the presence of God or hear him. A hard heart doesn't hear or sympathize with anybody else. 
It's bitter. It's angry. A hard heart is cynical. It's unfeeling, uncaring. A hard heart is hell-bent on revenge. That's why in verse 9 it says, don't repay evil for evil. A hard heart wants justice, wants revenge, wants to get even. Hard heart is cynical. Dr. John Perkins, he's a um, civil rights activist. He's 90 years old. And he said this, this generation is the first to turn hate into an asset. He's been at work seeking justice and seeking the shalom of God. But he says he's never been motivated by hate. But he says this is the first generation that sees hatred as an asset. Right now, people we're experiencing as a, as a country, as a city, a lot of ugly things. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of heartbreak. Uh, this last week, a lot of people have been torn up, angered over the lack of justice over Breonna Taylor. She's a 27-year-old emergency room worker who was killed, fatally shot by police when they raided her apartment. And it's easy to jump into corners of arguing, of, of seeing different sides of that. But one of the things that we're first called to do is be sympathetic, to be tender-hearted. That when we see communities of people experiencing pain, that we sympathize with them. That our heart is broken with them. That's what having a tender heart means. It says we are to have a brotherly love. That when we see communities hurting, that we, we treat them as brothers, as sisters. We experience and we enter into their pain. That's what Christians are called to do first before we take sides. We are to have an open heart to each other, listening to each other. Uh, ultimately, we are to have unity of mind. That's one of the first things that Peter says. Christians should have a unity of mind. Another way to translate that is like-mindedness. Christians, the church is called to be united, have the same mind. And it's right now our country is divided, and what we see is Christians are also divided. Churches and Christians are just as divided as the world. The world is very divided, but Christians are as well. But Peter says that should not happen in the church. In the church, it's understandable in the world that happens. But Peter says in the church, we're to have the same mind. How do, how do we do that? In verse 11, Peter quotes Psalm 34. He says, seek peace and pursue it. Peace is not something that automatically comes. It has to be pursued. We have to pursue it. We have to seek peace, especially in the church. We have to pursue it actively. How do we get that in church, especially when we ourselves feel divided? Well, Peter points out the first thing is in verse 15, we have to set apart Christ as Lord. We have to remember what it's all really about. What unites us is Jesus. He is our Lord. What's first is not our race, not our class, not our background, not our ideology, not our politics, but Christ is our Lord. He's our king. He's what brings us together. The minister, Scott Sauls, he, he writes about this time of division, especially politically. And he says, we should feel at home with people who share our faith, but not our politics, even more than we do with people who share our politics but not our faith. 
Saul says that our home should be, we should feel at home or right. Like these are my people with people who share a faith, even if they don't share our politics. That that main source of our unity is our is Christ, is who he is. Secondly, we come to the same mind as we study the word of God together. The Bible has a whole lot of things to say about justice and mercy. And we study that together. We let the word of God give us unity of mind. We study the scriptures in community. One of the interesting things about the Proverbs is that it's written, and a lot of Proverbs seems contradictory, but it's meant to be read in community. We're supposed to bring each one a, a Proverbs, a perspective, and we're supposed to have a dialogue. That's how wisdom is achieved, through a dialogue of disparate people. Let's do that as a church. Third, we, we listen to each other in that community. We empathize, we sympathize with each other. Finally, we show grace even after the end of all that we disagree with each other. You know, a few years ago, I was walking in downtown, uh, down Figueroa, and there was an old building that used to be a church. And on that building, as I read closely, uh, it said these, this phrase. It's a phrase actually by Augustine. And he says this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. It's an ancient phrase, actually, from Augustine. And that church, probably over a 100 years old, put that right over the church as you entered into the sanctuary. And it reminded us that in essentials, we're supposed to have unity. And things that have to do with God, the Trinity, salvation, man, that's the thing we should be all about. And we are united over that. But in non-essential things, we should have liberty. We should agree to disagree on non-essential things. But finally, in everything, we should have charity or love. That's a the uh, old school way of saying love. That in essentials and in non-essentials, we should always have love for each other. And that's the calling of the church. How do Christians stand apart in this divided, turbulent time? We stand apart by even when we disagree, loving each other, listening to each other, speaking graciously into each other's lives. One of my visions at City Light is not just that we would be a church that is diverse racially, by class, but even politically, that there are different people that can come together. We will be a testimony to the city if we have a church that is so diverse in every way, yet is so full of love for each other. Can you imagine that? We so listen to each other and respect each other and walk together. No, we will be a witness when we do that. We will be a witness in this very hostile world. In John chapter 17, Jesus says, the way people will know that they have sent me into the world is by your unity. <laughs> but the way you stand united together, that's going to be a witness. Especially now, the church needs that. Uh, the church is a witness. It's a powerful witness when it can love and stand united. It's a light in a divided time. But secondly, this is the way we bear witness. Light of truth. Peter has been talking about 
the church being assigned to the world. We're a signpost, we're a billboard that points to God. It's one of the roles of the church. And all throughout this letter, he's encouraging people to do that, the church to be that. And he says, even when times are hard, you are called to do that. You're called to bear witness. Even when people, when people persecute you and hate on you, he says, Christian, you're called still to do that. It's easy, especially when Christians uh, in this difficult time, especially when Christians are being hated on, it's easy not to want to do that. But listen to what Peter says in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter is speaking in a time of persecution where there's a lot of hostility toward Christians. And he gives gives them a word. And he says first of all, verse 13, which is interesting. He says, in theory, uh, you shouldn't be persecuted. Because why should people persecute you if you're doing good? And one of the things that Peter wants to use as a disclaimer is that when people hate on you if you're Christians, don't automatically assume it's because of Jesus. Don't automatically assume that sometimes Christians are hated on, not because we're like Jesus, but because we're not like Jesus. Think about that. Sometimes Christians are hated because of their hypocrisy, their judgmental spirit, the way that we can be rude or self-serving. You know, there's uh, this last year, uh, there was a, a featured movie and a documentary based on the life of Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. And um, a lot of people are saying people are looking back at Mr. Rogers and his show and his life because there's a lot of nostalgia over that because it represents a different era, an era that we so desperately need now. Fred Rogers was an ordained Presbyterian minister, and he was all about teaching people kindness, about civility, sharing, self-worth. He essentially taught people how to be a good neighbor and how to love your neighbor, which oddly enough is the golden rule. As a minister, that's all he was trying to do. He was trying to teach children to obey the golden rule. Imagine that. Nobody in uh, Fred Rogers' time or our time ever was calling, shouting to cancel Mr. Rogers. No one said that. No one was saying, let's cancel Mr. Rogers. He is, he is just too nice. People weren't saying that. No one said negative things about him. The worst thing you can say about Mr. Rogers is that he wore too many cardigan sweaters. Something like that. That's the worst thing you could say about him. But people loved him. Today, they're making movies about him. If Christians today were like Fred Rogers, consistently, faithfully, living a life of integrity, seeking to help people to love our neighbors, would we have the same hate? Would Christians be known? Would they be reviled today? It's a time, I think, for a lot of Christians to do soul searching. Historically, Christians have been just as racist Jeremy Tisby wrote a book called The Color of Compromise, and he just historically lays out how Christian churches have, have been complicit 
in that. It's a time for soul searching. Is the hatred due to our righteousness or our unrighteousness? It's time to think about that. But Peter goes on. He says, well, first think about why you're being hated. But then he says this in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. And Peter says, well, if indeed you're being persecuted because you're like righteous, because you are righteous, you could still rejoice. Peter says, some people will hate you because you are righteous. They hated Jesus. If you're like him, they will hate you too. Christians all over the world are being persecuted because of their righteousness, because they are like Jesus. And we will oftentimes be hated because we are like Jesus. So what are we to do in that time and that period? And here, Peter says this in verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter says that people are hating on you because of your faith. Even then you're called not to hate on them back, but to bless them. You are called to be a witness to them. How are you to witness to them? Notice what Peter says about witnessing. Sometimes we think that witnessing is about trying to interject Jesus into our conversations with non-Christians, having some awkward moments with them, saying the four spiritual laws. When I grew up, I grew up at a youth group and we passed out tracks. We call it random evangelism. We went to airports and we passed out tracks. I had the most awkward conversations with people. And um, I, it was painful to want to talk to them in a way in which they didn't really want to hear. But notice what Peter says. He doesn't say, first, initiate these awkward conversations. No, he says, live in such a way that people are curious about your faith. That you should, you should be so hopeful that people ask you about your faith. Think about what Peter's saying. He flips it around. He says that we should be so much a people of hope, knowing our inheritance knowing the plan and power of God, that we should be so hopeful that people ask us about our hope. If you think about evangelism and you feel not ready for it, first focus on your hope, and then opportunities will come. First focus not so much on evangelists, but first focus on being a hopeful person. And if you are, if you're living in the world, people will ask you about your faith. Peter says that Christians should always be prepared to make a defense. That word defense is was used in legal courts for someone defending themselves against accusations. Some people think Christianity is illogical, unscientific. Um, and we are to have an answer for that. But more specifically, Peter says we should have an answer for the hope that is within us. We should stand out by being people of hope. Right now, we um, there's so much hopelessness. People are so divided, so angry. People look at this world and they feel like the world is spinning out of control. There is a pandemic. There are fires 
There is their social media trying to manipulate us. There is racism, division, politics. Everyone seems so cynical about life. And Christian people, in contrast, Peter is saying, the way you are a light is the way that you contrast that cynicism by being people of hope and being able to explain that hope to people. How would you explain the hope of Christianity to people? And are you the kind of person when they see you, they see a glimmer of hope? How do you explain that? You know, one of the reasons, one of the most effective witnesses in the modern church era and uh, people who have really uh, made the message of Christianity attractive and shown its beauty are two friends, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. And they were friends. And one of the ways that they made the beauty of Christianity compelling is by telling stories. If you listen to their writings, they say that uh, all of us, Christian and non-Christian, have within us a desire, a memory of the true story. Stories are ways to speak to people's deepest desires and what they deeply know to be true. So they wrote stories based on the story that tell people, that compel people. All of their stories um, have darkness in them. C.S. Lewis's Narnia, it was always winter, never Christmas. All, they had all the bitter, uh, witch had put a spell on Narnia. It was cold, it was awful, it was bitter. Uh, Tolkien's, um, Tolkien's world, Middle Earth, was a supremely dark place, dark lord. Uh, was consolidating power. It was literally, spiritually dark. There's war, there's bloodshed, there's evil, creeping. These were dark places. And these books echoed the story of the gospel. The gospel is a story that starts with creation. It's beautiful, but there's a curse. There's a spell. There's deep darkness and brokenness that enters the world because of sin. In every fairy tale, there's always a deep sense of darkness. It's the gospel story. But in the gospel story, there's a redeemer who comes. Who comes in the most unexpected form and way to redeem all that is lost. To restore all things. C.S. Lewis called the gospel a true myth. It's a myth. It has these mythical elements of darkness. Of a hero, of beauty, of restoration, a happy ending, but he calls it a true myth. It's actually true. And all the myths are actually based on this one true story. And that's what we tell ourselves and our kids. I tell my kids, this is part of the story that is like that darkness in Narnia. When all the hero, the, the lion is slain. Frodo is left alone and the darkness is encompassing, is overshadowing him. I tell my kids, this is the part of the story right now. We're in that part of the story. All seems lost. It seems terrible, bad. Doesn't seem like any good is coming. We're in that part of the story right now. I love this part of of the story where Sam, he's, he's talking to Frodo. Frodo's about ready to give up. And this is what he says to him. 
He says, it's like in that great, the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really matter. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. Zeb tells Frodo that, that it's like these epic stories of darkness. And he wonders how can, how can, how can the story go on after so much bad had happened? But he says in all those epic stories, the darkness does pass. The hero does come. And it's the longing of all of our hearts right now. That's what we want. And the gospel says that's a true myth. It's a true story. That's why I have hope. Because historically, it's not a myth. Jesus has entered into history to redeem all that was lost. That is the happy ending we all desire. This is the last point. It really ultimately points to Jesus. You know, things that Christians do is we explain the darkness. Well, the Bible has a lot of this darkness. And we're experiencing that now. But ultimately, the Bible and the story of God is about this person of Jesus. And what Christians are simply doing is we point to him. You know, Peter's letter, he's constantly bringing it back to Jesus and who he was and his person. And his power. Every subject, every chapter, it really comes back to him. And here in chapter 3, Jesus, Peter's talking about righteous suffering. Suffering that has purpose and meaning. And he brings it back to Jesus in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Peter talks about Jesus and he talks about this great exchange that Jesus Christ entered. He wrote himself into the story. The story was there's darkness, there's death, there's curse. We're far from God. God it was so bad that God himself wrote him into our story. And he's come to the earth in an unexpected way. Not not to rule, not to reign, but to suffer, to take on. That's what empathy is, right? It's entering into the suffering of another. That's what Jesus did. He entered into our suffering and he took it on himself. And in verse 18, the righteous for the unrighteous. There's an exchange. The righteous suffers for the unrighteous. The gospel is this truth that when you believe on Christ... All of our sin is placed on Jesus. Whenever you think about your sin, don't think about it on you. It's on him. He took your sin. He has it. He suffered for it. And all of the beauty and the righteousness of Jesus is given to you. Whenever you think about the beauty of Jesus, his goodness, his righteousness, always remember it's on you now. You have that in Christ. He took our shame and he gave us his riches. That is the beauty and the blessing of Jesus. And Jesus will finally come to restore everything. When he comes back, he will come. All that is evil and wicked will become untrue. And all the goodness and beauty and love will, heaven will come down and the earth will be full of it. 
That's the hope that we have as believers. In 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20, uh, 19 to 20, Peter uh, sums up this victory of Jesus. 1 Peter 3, uh, 19 and 20, is probably, those are probably the two most difficult verses in the entire New Testament. I'll probably say in the entire Bible. And in that verse, it says that Jesus went down after he resurrected and preached the evil spirits who are prisoners in the underworld. It's a perplexing series of texts. And ultimately, there's a lot of dispute about what that means. But ultimately, uh, what Jesus did is he proclaimed victory over those evil spirits who rebelled formerly in the time of Noah. And what this whole text is about is what chapter 3 is about. Jesus Christ is king. He, after his victory on earth, his resurrection, he even goes to the, the depths of the earth and to hell, and he proclaims his victory there in hell. Jesus Christ is exalted to heaven, and he is exalted to the right hand of the Father in glory. And what Peter is saying is from the depths of hell to the heights of heaven to here on earth, Jesus Christ is proclaimed as king. He's king. He's the Lord. From the depths of hell, they know it, to the heights of heaven. And Peter is saying, tell everyone about it here on earth too. Jesus is the king. He specifically mentioned the time of Noah because it's instructive for all of us. Noah lived in a time where there was destruction coming and Noah was to be the prophet who spoke to people, who warned people to get in the ark. And Peter is saying, we all have the role of Noah today. You're called to be like Noah today. You're called to be witnesses, prophets in a time where people are disbelieving God, cynical. Things are dark. You're called to be like Noah. You're called to tell people about the only hope, Savior that we have. There's not a flood of water coming, but a flood of fire. Get in the boat. We're called to be like Noah. And Peter is saying, you witness, you speak, you are a witness in the way that you love as a church, staying united. You're a witness with your words and with the hope that you have. And ultimately, you witness by showing people Jesus. You know, you might be at a time right now where it's dark and you feel dark as a Christian. I felt like that. And I felt like, man, I don't have a lot to offer. You might feel discouraged, just as discouraged as anyone else during this time. But here's my encouragement to you. You know, the darker things are, even a tiny flicker makes a huge difference. We're in a really dark time now. People are super cynical right now. If you are just a flicker of light, man, you are a glimmer of hope for people. So keep flickering if that's all you have. Ultimately, what we're doing is we're not self-generating light. We're simply reflecting the light of Jesus to show people his light, show people his truth. I want to close with a story. Um, it's a story about a, a politician. His name is Dan Crenshaw. He was a Navy SEAL officer. And he lost his eye as a Navy SEAL due to an explosive device while serving in Afghanistan. As a result of this, he lost one of his eyes, his right eye. And he wore a very distinctive black patch over his eye. After his service was over, he was talking to a friend who encouraged him to run for office. And he became a... Uh, he he's a congressman now, 
a few years ago, uh, Pete Davidson, he's an SNL uh, comedian. He did a sketch in which he likened Dan Crenshaw. He said he looked like a hitman in a porno movie. And he added that he lost his eye in a war or whatever. Pete Davidson, after that sketch, received a huge amount of backlash. Uh, people were calling for him to be canceled, to be off the show. And through that experience, he spun into this depression. In one Instagram post, he wrote, I don't really want to be on this earth anymore. I'm doing my best to stay here for you, but I actually don't know how much longer I can last. And he felt a huge amount of weight on him, a sense of depression. Instead of uh, Crenshaw piling on to all the critics or even staying silent, he personally reached out to Pete Davidson. And he told him through, uh, through the phone conversation that he forgave him. And he encouraged him to know that you have value and you can do more good than you can realize for people. A few weeks after that, uh, Crenshaw actually appeared on the show on a Veterans Day weekend. And he used that as an opportunity to it's a surprise to Pete Davidson to, to encourage him. And he reminded people that Pete Davidson's father was a firefighter who lost his life on 9-11. And he thanked his father for that. And he blessed him. After the show, Davidson leaned over to Crenshaw and said, you are a good man. And it's an example of someone who, instead of cursing someone who cursed them, blessed him. Instead of being part of that darkness, well, he's, he's shining a light, the light of Jesus. He was bearing witness, bearing witness in a dark time. And that's what all of us are called to do, especially during these dark periods of time. Would you shine as a light so different by the way that you love each other and other people? The way that you're hopeful, not a hope of this world, the hope of this life to come, the hope of a savior, the way that you point people to him. And the darker our night gets, the more we need to be that light, which is show people through your life, through your words, this amazing savior who sympathizes with us, who wrote himself into our story who loves us, who has exchanged our rags for his riches, would you live in the hope of that beauty? Please join me in prayer. Father, we do come to you this morning in a world of darkness, in a world of despair, in a world of cynicism, and we do confess that it's hard for us to have hope. It is hard for us to believe. I pray that we would be like children who listen to the story of the gospel and receive it. I pray, God, that you would give us the encouragement of your spirit. I pray, God, that in darkness we would be your light, that reflect the light of Jesus. Help us to encourage each other during this time. Help us speak words of grace and life. Help us to know the story's not over. It's only beginning. Give us grace to reflect the beauty and the light of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.